Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles, again, turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 verse 4 is where we concluded last week. Here's what it says. It says, you, uh, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand. And I love this promise. We, we see the echoes of this promise in Philippians 1, 6. Uh, he says, and for the Lord, and, and to the one who stands, he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Philippians 1, 6 says that he who began a good work in us will carry it on until completion. Isn't that an amazing, hopeful truth? He who began the good work is still working. He's not slacked off on the job. He's going to carry it on until completion. So we ended with that, but uh, by way of conclusion last week, I also shared with you a rough overview of what we were going to look like, uh, look at today, but I want to go in a little bit better detail on what we're going to learn this morning. Number one is we're going to learn an understanding of judgment among Christians. What are we supposed to do as Christians? Are we to judge? Are we to listen to the world and not judge anybody? Uh, what about the scriptures that say don't judge? What about the scriptures that do say to judge? What are we supposed to do with that? So we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at judgment among Christians. And we will uh, apply that to the rest of the world. Number two, we're going to talk about the truth that Christians too will stand before the judgment seat of God. That each and every one of us, whether we know this or not, uh, the world is not the only one who stands before the white throne. We will stand before the judgment seat of God. But the question that we ask is why? The question we ask is to what end? And so that's an important thing to understand. The third thing that we're going to look at today is in light of number two, in light of the fact that we are going to stand before God, even Christians, before that judgment seat, we're going to look at the importance of an accurate understanding of Christian liberty. We have, we have been set free from sin and death. How many of you know that? We've been set free from sin and death. But how many of you also know we've been set free unto life and godliness and holiness and spirit-led life and all of those things? This is really important. We all too often just rejoice in the things that we've been set free from, but we ignore the things that we're called to. And then last but not least, and you're going to see how this plays in, we're going to talk about self-control because it's a, it's a, a fleeting trait inside of the world today. So we're going to look at self-control. At the outset, I simply want to say this, that uh, what we're learning today is one of the greatest issues in the church today. It might not have been one of the greatest issues in times past. I don't, I don't know uh, what uh, particular churches were going through in, in all of the times of history uh, as they were going through these issues, but I know that as we look at the world today, as I survey the world today and the church, uh, a proper understanding of judgment, a rightful place before God and our proper place before the saints is a problem in the church today. We don't understand these things. We don't understand how our behavior affects this relationship. We don't understand that our behavior should be affected by this relationship. 
Um, we don't understand our freedom. We often misuse that freedom. And we have no idea of the spiritual nature of the concept of self-control. So I want to I spend some time in this. But these ideas, as I see them, and I think you'll be convinced after today, these ideas are components of the gospel. There are many people in the world today that like to believe that their pet doctrines happen to be the gospel. This thing is the gospel. But what you're going to learn today is that all the aspects that we're talking about all come from the gospel. They are results of the gospel. Judgment is a part of the gospel. Justice is a part of the gospel. Obedience is a part of the gospel. So we're going to see all of those pieces uh, in, in the message today. So with that in mind, let's just get into number one right off the bat. Number one, an understanding of judgment among Christians. Now, I've taught this in the past. I've taught that um, there has to be a distinction made. We, we struggle with this. But there has to be a distinction made between condemnation and evaluation according to godly standards. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? There is a massive distinction between condemnation and evaluation. The culture has said, don't judge. And many ignorant Christians, and yes, that is a thing, many ignorant Christians uh, assume that we are not supposed to judge either. But this is not the truth. This is not the truth. The scripture is clear that we are not to judge, meaning condemn. Meaning condemn. Okay, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. But the same gospel account, as a matter of fact, the exact same chapter spoken by the same Jesus says that we as Christians will know each other, uh, we will know other Christians by their fruit, Matthew 7, 16. This is the concept of evaluation. So we're going to evaluate people, we're going to see their behavior, going to see their life, and we're going to know whether or not they belong to the Lord or whether or not they belong to uh, uh, to the devil. The fruit-bearing Christians that are, uh, that are talked about here in Matthew chapter 7 are contrasted with false prophets in chapter 7 verse 15. So 16 says we'll know each other by our fruits and 15 says and this is to the contrast of the false prophets that were going before. In other words, it is very clear that we are going to evaluate one another and determine what is right, what is true. Amen? We're going to see this idea. So the distinction that we really need to understand is the distinction between condemnation and evaluation. We are all called to evaluate. We are all called to evaluate. You will know each other by the fruit in your life. And you will be able to distinguish whether somebody is lying or not. We've also looked in times past at, at different words that communicate these ideas of judgment. There are Greek terms that mean condemnation and only condemnation. There are Greek terms that mean uh, evaluation or assessment and only evaluation or assessment. But what do we do in Romans 14? What do we do in cases like Romans 14 or cases like Matthew 7 when the same term for judgment is used throughout? What do we do when we hear these terms that can be translated either way? The term can be translated evaluation. The, the term can be translated as condemnation. What are we supposed to do with this? How do we determine what is what? Well, the answer, the answer is my favorite answer in biblical interpretation. You already know my answer. The answer is context. It's an amazing thing. You see, dictionaries are really important for, for arriving at proper meaning, but dictionaries should never trump 
context. Dictionary should, how many of you have ever read a dictionary? I'm not saying cover to cover. I'm simply saying, you know, it's, a, it's a, just a wonderful weekend read. Just grab the Merriam-Webster's, right? So we've read a dictionary. We know that when a term comes up, there are multiple definitions under that term. One of the worst translations of the Bible, if you have this translation, bear with me, right? But one of the worst translations of the Bible in modern history, in recent history, is called the NLT, the New Living Translation. Why? Because the NLT, when it has troublesome words, decides to throw out at you three options of, of ideas of what the word could mean. Well, there's a problem with that. The word doesn't mean all three of those options. This isn't, the Bible isn't multiple choice. What, what, were those, what were those games that we used to play? Uh, Mad Libs. That was what it was. You had to insert a noun and a verb and all these. The Bible doesn't work that way. You don't get to just insert the term that you want it, want it to mean. There is a context, and the context helps us understand particular words. We need to remember that. How many of you know what faith is? I've told you what it is. We've got a motto for it, don't we? Faith is trust and that is all, okay? Faith is trust and that is all. Here's the important thing. There are times in Scripture where the word faith might appear to mean something else. And so it's important for us to really understand it better. In the, in the epistle to Jude, or in the epistle of Jude, we actually read this phrase. It says, the faith once delivered to all the saints. Now, I still stand by the definition that faith is trust and that is all. And anybody who has any idea of inheritance or financial situations understands what a trust is. They understand what a trust is. And so when you read in Jude that it is the faith once delivered to all the saints, you understand by context that what we're talking about here is the body of belief that one puts their trust into. Amen? So if it is the faith once delivered to all the saints, it is in fact the trust that we place our trust into. It is the promise that has been given to us. But the context helps us to understand that particular term. Faith still means trust, and so we have to understand that. Uh, this goes for judgment. It goes for love. It goes for many things. And we've got to be careful with how we interpret things. In Romans 14, verses 4 and 10, we have to keep in mind the relationship that is presented here because this context is going to help us to understand the prohibition for judgment. There are three parties present in chapter 2, or in chapter 14. Two servants and one master. The weak in faith, the strong in faith, and the master. In verse 4, the question is, who are you to judge the servant of another? And you can follow along with me. Who are you to judge the servant of another? It seems, based on this, that the prohibition here is actually not against evaluation, uh, but it is against condemnation or the place from which we judge. The place from which we judge. Why? Because verse 4 says, you're not the judge. Who are you to judge the servant of another? When evaluating the conduct of a brother or sister in Christ Jesus, we have to remember that we are not their masters. Can you guys look at somebody next to you and say, I'm not your master? 
I am so glad that I see some husbands and wives. Anyway, okay, let me, let me, let me rephrase that. Uh, pastors are talked about being uh, in charge in certain contexts, right? That pastors are supposed to be shepherds over the flock. It says in Scripture that pastors are worthy of double honor. What a fascinating thing, and, I, and I'm going to take you all up on that. No. Anyway, so pastors are worthy of double honor. What does the Scripture also say? It says when the chief shepherd appears... Us pastors are going to jump back in the pen. (laughs) We are sheep just like all the rest. In Ephesians 6, when it literally is talking about a master over a slave, Jesus Jesus would tell us, or the Spirit of God through Paul would tell us, that, that we need to be cautious. If you're a master over a servant, a master over a slave, you need to be cautious. Why? Because God is no respecter of persons. The God is master over all, and one day he is going to uh, enforce that position. So you better be kind to your servants. So even if the term master is used in the scripture, it still needs to be understood that we are no one's master. We are not Lord over anyone except for maybe the respectful title that we see. We can make the case quite clear from the whole of God's word that we are our brother's keeper. Turn to somebody and say, I am your keeper. (laughs) I am your keeper. We are our brother's keeper, but we are never told whatsoever in Scripture that we are our brother's master. Again, it's the place of judgment that Paul is prohibiting. In other words, we're not permitted to judge from the bench. You see the problem? The problem is us ascending to the place of God. In verse 10, go there. In verse 10, we see it a bit clearer. First, to the weak in faith, Paul asks, why do you judge your brother? I love that because as we talked about last week, it is the weak in faith that are often judgmental. Why do you judge your brother? And then to the strong in faith, he asks, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Who holds people in contempt in a court of law church? The judge does, right? So why would, you, why would you hold anybody in contempt? You're not the judge. Paul seems to answer this rhetorical question when he says this. He says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. What a humbling line there. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. How dare we jump in that place? How dare we ascend his throne? We have no place there. This relationship between brothers and sisters and servants is one of mutual humility and love. It's one of mutual humility and love. We are, whether we know this or not, uh, in contrast to God, we are the inferior party here. We don't make all the wise decisions that we need to make. We don't make all good decisions. We're not always just. To put ourselves in the place of God or master is to think far too highly of ourselves. This is to, this is to be a, a, a people of pride. And what does the scripture say? God rejects the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is important. I've shared it many times in the past that our our race as Christians is a race to the back of the line. I wish I would have written that line. It's just a fantastic line, but that is our call. It's a race to the back of the line. In the story of the prodigal son, the trouble with the older brother is that in his own eyes, his judgment of his brother is placed equal with the father's. Just think about it for a second. The the younger brother has come back from his wayward living. He's done everything that he shouldn't have done. 
He once thought he was smarter than his dad. He, he, he put himself in that position. He thought he was smarter than his dad. He spent all his money. He ended up living in pig squalor and all this other stuff, right? And so then he comes back. The father sees him far off. He runs to him. He falls on him. He kisses him. He puts a robe on his shoulders. He puts sandals on his feet. He reinstates him as a son by putting a ring on his finger. And then he throws a party for him. You guys all know this story. So he throws the party. When the older brother comes back and he hears the sound of people dancing and the, sing, the sound of people singing, he goes and he's got a frustration with this. What in the world is happening? And the servant of the master says, didn't you hear? Your brother has returned. He was once dead. He's now alive. He was once lost. He's now found. And he throws a little temper tantrum. He throws a little hissy fit and his father comes back and comes out and says, isn't it right for us to rejoice in the fact that he's alive? Think about this for a second, church. The father is the only one who has the right to make the judgment. He's the only one who has the right to put the robe back on his son's shoulders or the sandals on his son's feet. He's the only one who has the right and he does. He exercises the right and he throws him a party. But what does the older brother do? Don't miss it. He ascends to the judgment seat and says, my view of my brother is on par with your view. I will tell you what needs to happen. And so he's stubborn and doesn't want to go into the party. How pitiful is this? This is an example of a prohibition with regard to judgment in the scriptures. We're not this people. If God shows mercy, then we rejoice. This is where Jonah went wrong in the Old Testament. It's where the Pharisees missed the point in Jesus' day. The Father's judgment is one of perfection and ours is skewed because we are faulty people. Toward the prodigal, toward the Ninevites, and towards the sinners of Jesus' day, what was God's judgment, church? Mercy. It was mercy. Meanwhile, the other servants, Jonah, the older brother, and the Pharisees, jump into the seat of God and condemn. How dare we? How dare we? This is the prohibition against judgment. Contrary to what the world says, you, you don't judge at all. You can't call people out for their sin. You can't do this and you can't do that. They have no idea what they're talking about. That's evaluation. But if when you see their sin, you say you're worthless and you have nothing to do with me or with God, you be careful. You've slipped completely into condemnation. You've jumped into the seat of the Father. Verse 13 goes on to show what Paul is getting at with these Roman Christians. He says this, he says, Let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine... That word determine is the same word for judge. It's the same root term. Uh, he says, therefore, we need to judge this. Don't judge, but judge this. Well, Paul, what are you talking about? Evaluation isn't the problem. He says, evaluate this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in your brother's way. Paul then connects that with love in verse 14. Read it. He says, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. What are we supposed to do? Of course we're supposed to love. Now that's got to be defined by God's terms as well, and, and we've spent many, many sermons looking at that. Judgment in this context is not about assessment to help a brother or sister in love. That is the natural state of the Christian's life. Instead, it's a prohibition against setting ourselves on par with the Father. This is condemnation. 
Last week I shared that we all too often accept the criticisms of the world. You guys remember this part of the sermon. We accept the criticisms of the world. We should not do so. We should evaluate. We should judge rightly and find out whether or not we are off base. If we are, we repent. If we're not, we do not for a second allow the Christian life to be commandeered by a bunch of people in the world who just don't like to hear what we have to say. Please hear me correctly, church. We should not let false criticism hinder our obedience. The call to the Christian life is as James tells us in James 5, 19 and 20. He says, you, the one who turns a sinner from error has saved them. You know what is required to turn a sinner from error? You have to tell them they're a sinner. <laughs> you have to point out their sin. And then you have to call them to something greater. So the, the culture really has us backed up against the wall, church. The culture has us backed up against the wall. The criticism has been levied against the church for so long now that even the saints of God accept it and they say, we shouldn't judge, we shouldn't judge, we shouldn't judge. Let me give you one of the, one of the more nefarious manifestations of this that we see because the devil is, is plotting and scheming, right? He, he plants these ideas inside of the church. People will say, you should never pick on one particular sin, because if you do, you need to call the Christians out for being gluttons, and you need to be calling the Christians out for being this and being that. That's absolutely true. You see, there's another solution. Be an equal opportunity offender. Call everybody out on these things. That's my job in life, and it's not one that will win you many friends and influence people. But it is the call of the Christian life to rip. To rescue the sinner from judgment is important. And why is all of this so important? Because the truth is, church, we're obeying God. And we will all, as Christians, stand before the judgment seat of God. So, step two. Christians will stand before God's judgment seat, but to what end? In Romans 2.16, Paul declares that all mankind will stand before him. Quote, on that day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. But in Romans 14.10, he says this, but you Christians, this is Roman Christians, Jew and Gentile alike, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. I love it when Paul inserts himself into the story. There's two parties present, two servants, one master, and all of a sudden Paul says, oh, I'm a servant too. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He doesn't appeal to his apostleship and say, I got a different standard for me. No, he knows what he's called to. He knows that he will stand before God. So he says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Just so we're clear, who stands before the judgment seat of God? Yeah, the, the Claremont County answer is Everybody. Okay, that's the answer. Okay, everybody stands before the judgment seat of God, Christians and non-Christians alike. But as we go there, as we begin to understand why this is the case, I want to show you an often overlooked aspect of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 2.16, if you're there, please underline this in your Bible. On the day when, according to my gospel, what follows is in accordance 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? When on that day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Judgment is a part of the good news. Judgment is a part of the good news. Here's what that means, though. Here's what that means. If you have ever found yourself into a, in a place where you've been wronged in life, where you have been the, you have been the, I don't know, the receiving party of, you've been the receiving party of pain, of suffering, something like this. Sorry, guys, I got to turn that off. You've been the receiving party of pain and suffering. If a judge judge judges in your favor, is that good news? If a judge judges in your favor because you were, the, you were the victim, is that good news? Yes, that's good news. The culture has said judgment across the board can't be good news. That's not true. Judgment is, is superb news for the person who needs justice. Justice is a beautiful thing. So why does the believer stand before God? One of the first reasons that the believer stands before God is to receive justice. We are God's people. And we face affliction in this life for trusting in him. And God will bring about perfect justice in that time. I think that's good news. I don't know about you, but that is a glorious truth. But there's another reason why we will stand before the judgment seat of God. And that is to be assessed based on what we have done in this life. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. The same Apostle Paul who writes to the Romans, the same Apostle Paul who wrote to the Philippians, writes this to the Corinthian church. He says, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who is he talking to, church? Christians, everybody. <laughs> I love it. He is talking to Christians, right? He is talking to the church in Corinth. He says, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed. Do you know what that word means? To be paid back. What? This doesn't sound like grace or mercy. We're not understanding where we're at in the storyline. So that each one may be recompensed, that is, paid back for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You can write these down for your own study. Colossians 3, 24 and 25 and Ephesians 6, 8 communicate the same principles. As I said last week, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the idea that we are justified by grace through faith and that we are rewarded in eternity for things that we do for obedience, the Apostle Paul views to be complementary, not contradictory. It doesn't matter what people say, okay? The way I've shared this in the past is that you and I were saved by grace through faith. But in view of mercy, what should we do? We should present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice before God. We should, we should honor God with our, uh, with our existence. This being Father's Day, I was thinking about this. Um, I was thinking about this a lot this week, actually. And that is, um, so you can understand a right relationship here, so you can understand this in right perspective. Um, when I first understood that my mom and my dad both... Uh, when I first understood that they loved me, do you know what was stirred in my heart? A desire to please them. I wanted to please them with everything that I had. 
There, it was a reason why I, I strove to, to, create, to get good grades in school. It's the reason why I honestly didn't get in as much trouble maybe as other people. It didn't make me any less a sinner, but I didn't get in, in as much trouble because I thought about the, the joy of my parents. I thought about bringing a smile to their face and not shame to them. There, this was heavy on me. Since I was eight years old, it was a big deal to me. And so I, I used to think about those kinds of things. Now, now put this in right perspective. When I discovered that my parents loved me, I decided that I wanted or something in me wanted to please them. Now, in doing good, was I looking to make sure that they stayed loving me? No. I did not try to make them love me. I wanted to please them. I wanted to bring joy to their heart. And here's what's really amazing. The same is true in your relationship with God. God bought you at a price. God paid a very high price for humanity. To want to honor him is to want to praise him. To want to honor him is to want to bring a smile to his face. To want to honor him has nothing to do with earning your salvation. It has to do with you saying, he's my father. And he's deserving of everything that I do. And likewise in that relationship, my father, my mother both, but my father would reward me. Probably more than, more than mom right? Mom, mom was like, you need to stay next to the cart in the grocery store. Dad was like, let's go to the toy aisle. And that was pre pretty much just because dad wanted to go to the toy aisle. You see what I'm saying? But the idea is that I, I remember doing things just to bring dad a smile and he would reward us for that. I didn't think for one second I was earning his favor. And so we need to keep this in mind when we're talking about our relationship with our Father. God's Word clearly tells us we're saved by grace through faith. God's Word also clearly, clearly tells us that we will stand before the judgment seat of God and we will be repaid for the things we've done in this life, that which is good and that which is bad. Why not do anything and everything the Father says to see him uh, with joy, to see him smile, and then to see him reward those he loves. There is a reason why the scripture talks about those who are greatest in the kingdom of God and those who are the least in the kingdom of God. Make no mistake, there's three categories. There are greatest, least, and not in the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says. There are greatest, there are least, and there are not in the kingdom of God. We have a huge responsibility before us Christians. This is not we're saved by grace, sit on your couch until Jesus returns. This is we're saved by grace, and to whom much is given, much is expected. God has called you to something absolutely beautiful, and guess what you get to do with it? You get to worship Jesus with it. You get to honor your Father with it. You get to bring a smile to his face, because he first loved you. Such an important idea. Number three, this is where it flows into um, an accurate understanding of Christian liberty. An accurate understanding of Christian liberty. What we're saved from and what we're saved to. In the context of Romans chapter 14, the specific liberty addressed is that of eating. So not 
stretching beyond what Romans 14 says, but using the whole of Scripture, we can see what our liberties are outside of that. The argument is actually what is clean and what is not clean. Uh, So it has to do with food. It also has to do with special days that are being celebrated. And later on, he talks about drinking. But we can go on to that at another time. So, So the Christian with strong in faith knows that they can eat anything they want. Did you know that? We can eat anything that we want, even if it's sacrificed to idols. What is that? But listen to me. Listen to me very clearly. But we live in the real world among people, and some of those people happen to have weak faith. Instead of sitting in judgment, what the scripture says is that we're called to love them. And a practical outplay of love happens to be us abstaining even from that which we have liberty to possess or do. We're free, but it doesn't mean that we just get to walk around in our freedom flaunting it to everybody else. We're to come under one another. We're to lay down our lives. There's a practical definition of what it means to lay down your life. We are to uh, live in mutual submission to one another. I'm free to, but I know that you struggle, so I will submit myself to you. This is one of the principles uh, which, is, which has particular bearing on us as American Christians. So maybe you're going to get offended at me, maybe you won't. But as Americans, we tend, to, we tend to look at life and say, it's my right, it's my freedom, don't tread on me, don't tell me what to do. And that is not a Christian attitude. It is simply not a Christian attitude. Anybody remember the passage in uh, Corinthians that says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial? Anybody remember this passage? I hope to shed some light on this. The idea that's communicated twice in Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians 6 and 10, uh, is is that very thing. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. But like the similar attitude in America, what Paul is actually doing here is confronting Corinthian slogans. Paul is not saying that that is a Christian principle. He's actually taking the culture that he lived in and he's he's addressing it. He's shooting it down. And just in case you're skeptical, this is a well-documented scholarly fact. This is written down in their, in their recordings, in their writings, that these were their sayings. So they would say, the Corinthians would say, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Think about the problem with that. If that is a true statement in biblical ideas, then morality is simply utilitarian. Morality is simply this. If it's no longer useful, then we can throw it away. But as long as it's useful, we're fine. How foolish is that? Some in the current culture today would apply that idea to abortion. Well, it's useful. It's full because I don't have to actually be responsible for the actions that I've done in my life. So I get to take an innocent life. I get to kill a baby. And guess what? It is good because all things are permissible. That's not what Paul was saying whatsoever. It's just simply nowhere in the scripture. As a matter of fact, there's a third slogan that you can find. And Paul answers it right away. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. How many of you amen that? (laughs) Yes. However, that's a slogan. And think about why this would contradict what else he's taught in Romans 14. If the food is for stomach and stomach is for the food, then he should spend no time telling people to stop eating certain things. It contradicts itself. But this slogan was 
around in Corinth. And so they would say, the stomach is for food and, the food, and food is for the stomach. And Paul responds to it and says, and yeah, and God's going to destroy it all. Smile. So Paul's answer to this is, this is nonsense. God's going to destroy both. What am I getting at with this point? True freedom is not the freedom from restraint, church. Freedom, uh, true freedom, Christian liberty, is being set free from bondage and to walk in righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 6 and 10, Paul establishes clear biblical parameters. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, look at what he says. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, that's terribly judgmental, Paul. (laughs) Yes, he's assessing rightly. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? He then warns them not to be deceived. So think about that statement being said today. Think about this statement. It says, says, uh, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, church. This is precisely the problem today. The church asks this question all the time. They say, well, can't I be a Christian and also be this or that? And the answer according to God's word is emphatically no. You cannot be anything that you want to be. The unrighteous that will not inherit the kingdom of God are then listed. Look at what he says. Fornicators, idolaters. This is not an exhaustive list, by the way. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. The last four seem to be talking about used car salesmen. But nonetheless, it's, they, they are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Paul then says this. Look at the line. This is overlooked constantly. Such were some of you. Such what? Such were some of you. You have left that behind. Quick, quick teaching here. Can Christians still sin? Of course we can. Are Christians known by their sin? No. We are not known by our sin because such were some of us. Such were some of us. Not such still are, but some were. Such were some of us. Does that mean that there aren't struggles in the Christian life that are harder for us to overcome? Does that that mean that addiction isn't a real thing and it needs to be overcome? Addiction is a real thing. It does need to be overcome. And guess what that requires? It requires a brother or a sister walking beside you to help you get out of that pit. Christians, listen to me. Listen to me, please. You will not get out of your pit by keep, if you keep digging. You will not get out of your pit if you sit there alone, start a campfire, and say, I'm going to live here. You will not get out of your pit. And you are supposed to get out of your pit, which means something, which means we have to actually confess our sins. Hi, my name's Nathan, and I struggle. Dot, dot, dot. But it is not, hi, my name's Nathan, and I am anything. Such were some of you. These things are gone. They are things of the past, and we need to be walking forward. The parameter in God's word uh, about morality is not utilitarian. Please, please, please don't miss that. It is sure, it is, it is, it is matter of fact. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what is Paul doing here? In this, in this passage in Corinthians, he's actually taking aim at ideas of human history. So back to Romans 14. Paul's response to this kind of approach is that 
You're not going to do these things if you're a true Christian. If you're a Christian, you will walk in love both towards God and towards man. So far, here's where we've been. We've learned that judging, meaning assessment, is the natural state of the Christian. But we are not to jump in the place of God. We also know that as Christians, we are going to stand before God and be repaid both for the good and the bad that we do inside of this life. What we just learned is that our freedom is a freedom to do things God's way, and that is a humbling reality. But just so you understand this as Christians, this is not a cause to fear. Perfect love casts out fear. This is a cause to humble ourselves before a holy God. So here's the final point. Number four, how does this play in to self-control? I need everybody's attention. This is a very challenging piece to talk about, and I'm going to try to do my best to to play it out to many different areas of the Christian life. How many of you have ever heard or said the phrase that you want to be a part of a spirit-led church or you want to be a spirit-led person? How many of you have ever said that or heard that phrase? Come on. Keep, keep raising your hands if this is true of you. You want to be a part of a spirit-led church. You want to be a spirit-led or spirit-filled person. Well, well, guess what? The second you said yes to Jesus, you were a spirit-filled Christian. Smile, right? And if you're in a church of Christians, you are in a spirit-led church. Now, where that church goes can sometimes be taken over by the will and by the heart of man. Most of us have heard this phrase, and we would all agree with it. But either way, uh, this is one of those ideas, spirit-led church or uh, spirit-filled person, that requires proper definition. Let's work it out a bit. How many of you also remember that the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5 includes self-control? Here's the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the same Spirit you want to be led by. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and, say it with me, church, self-control. Anyone else find it interesting that Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is self-control? Wait a minute. You know what Paul meant. He meant spirit control. That's what he meant. He didn't mean self-control. He meant spirit control. No, Paul meant what he said. You see, that's one of those things that we have to understand and properly define. In some charismatic circles, and I'm not taking shots at charismatics right now, but in some charismatic circles, this has come to mean something rather foreign to Scripture. Being spirit-led is akin to the concept of possession. Instead of demonic possession, it's God possession. It's being moved about by the Spirit of God. Let's be clear, that idea, that idea, whether you know it or not, is not in the Scripture. Sure, people have visions, they have dreams. 2 Peter 1.21 says the men of old were carried along by the Spirit to speak prophetically. But what does that mean in its context? In its context, it was contrasted with you interpreting prophecy your own way. You don't get the right to do that. Men were carried along with right interpretations of Scripture. This is a real important thing. Make no mistake, the Spirit-filled Christian is a self-controlled Christian. If we want to be a spirit-led church, if we want to be a spirit-filled people, then we will, uh, we will accept the fruit of that very same spirit, which causes us to be in control of our lives. Let me give you an example from Scripture. In 1 Corinthians, in the gatherings there, they were abusing spiritual gifts. You all know this. They were abusing spiritual gifts, and, and in particular, they were abusing the gift of speaking in tongues. 
make no mistake, we should not forbid the speaking in tongues. Make no mistake, we should not become cessationists who have no, uh, who, who have no root in the scripture for what they believe. But if there is a gift like this, right, they, they spoke in tongues, they were to see if there was an interpreter present. If there was no interpreter present, listen to me, if there was no interpreter present, what were they supposed to do, church? They were to shut their trap, right? If there wasn't, think about it, no, no interpreter present, which demanded foreknowledge, doesn't it? It doesn't say speak the tongue, and then if there's no interpreter present, retract your words. You can't do that. None of us can bring back our words. I know we all wish we could sometimes, but it is to know before. If you didn't have an interpreter, you were supposed to pray for the interpretation, but that doesn't mean you would get the interpretation. But it also implies you would know if you got the interpretation. Otherwise, you were, to, you were to remain quiet. Listen to this. Isn't speaking in tongues godly? Speaking in tongues is a godly thing. Just like eating all things that are clean, it's a godly thing. Just like doing anything in our Christian liberty is a good thing. But freedom is not to be the cause of someone to stumble. It is to be an exhibition of love and help for them to grow. Which means self-control is a spirit-ordained idea. This is why order in our church services is an important biblical matter. God never communicates the idea that if it's truly a God, godly thing, you should just wing it and let the spirit flow. This isn't biblical. God says even when it's good and clearly defined according to scripture, it's subject to self-control. So why am I bringing this up? What does that have to do with Romans 14? Read verse 20 with me. Read verse 20 with me. Romans 14, 20. And look at what it says of that which is good. Verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. The genuinely spirit-filled life, spirit life is a self-controlled life. According to the scripture, the problem with humanity and our sin is that we're actually out of control by nature. We're actually winging it by nature. When it comes to your Christian liberty, which means that you do not practice the things of unrighteousness, but the things of God, when it comes to your Christian liberty, those things are still under the governance of self-control. Because if they cause somebody to stumble, you have a problem. You can eat whatever you want, but for the sake of your brother, you are to restrain yourself. This, in fact, is love. And do you want to know who our example is? Jesus. Read with me. Romans 15, verses 1 through 3. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What a powerful line. Now turn with me in, in conclusion to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He could have done anything he wanted, and he has the right to do anything he wants. 
He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth. By the way, that's exactly what Romans 14 told us. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. In heaven and in earth and under the earth. And, the, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, we have to learn what it means to judge. It's not about condemnation. We don't ascend to the throne. It is about evaluation. It is about proper assessment. You do, if you are a loving Christian, just as Penn Jillette has shared with us, the famous atheist, about the doctrine of hell, if you believe in hell and you are so uh, irrespective or uncaring of a person to not tell them of that truth, you believe it with all your heart and you don't want to tell them, it's the most unloving thing you can do. It is the most unloving thing Christians can do to know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God and to sit silent as people in their unrighteousness run straight off cliffs. What kind of foolishness are we participating in? Oh, I know what it is. The world told us not to judge, so we sit by silently as people die. What are we doing, church? Well, Nathan, it's judgmental. It's judgmental to not accept anybody's lifestyle. Nonsense. God defines what is acceptable. What you do is be loving enough to tell them the truth. They don't have to listen to you, and most likely they won't. But to not tell them the truth is just downright disobedience. Judgment needs to be understood. We will all, in light of that, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all look our Savior for the first time, our King for the first time in his face. We will see him face to face and he will either say, well done, good and faithful servant. What the heck were you thinking? Or depart from me, I never knew you. And I'm not adding to the Bible. I'm simply telling you that he is going to repay the good and the bad of the Christian. We will stand before him. We will look him in the eye. We have Christian liberty, but our liberty is to obey him. And if you think for a second you don't have the ability to obey, you don't really know the spirit that resides inside of you. You've been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. Your children need to hear they, if they have accepted Jesus, have been given everything they need pertaining to life and godliness. So many parents, I watch them with their kids, especially when they turn into teenagers, and they effectively say, hey, you know, what am I supposed to do? They're adults now. While you have influence, talk. While you have influence, talk. Listen, I sit around a group of fathers every Friday morning, of, among which are many fathers who say, gosh, we have regrets in our life. Man, we wish we would have said this or that. Listen, in 30 years, I don't want to have another father's group. We'll only get four chapters into the Bible by 30 years. But by that time, I don't, I don't want to be surrounded by another group of fathers that go, man, we have massive regrets. I want to be surrounded by a, a bunch of Christian fathers that say, we've done everything that we can. We have given our lives to Jesus and we've obeyed him. 
And he is, he is in control. He is in control. We're supposed to judge rightly, church. We're supposed to assess. We are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. We do have Christian liberty, but it must be put in subjection to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And listen to me, the best way that that holiness is presented or practiced in your life is the same way that your spiritual gifts should be practiced. You're you're flowing in the Spirit, filled with self-control. You can look straight in the eye of sin and say, no, no. I'm not telling you it'll be that easy. I'm not that stupid, honestly. I've wrestled with sins in my life, things that have come back in my life that I'm like, man, that is hard not to fall into. That is hard not to, uh, to, to just succumb to. But guess what? We have self-control because we have a spirit residing inside of us. We can say no, and we're supposed to say no. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.